Automotive questions you might have, why don't you go give us a call? It's 291 6901. That'll get you right straight to us. That's right. And you put a 225 in front of that. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. That is absolutely correct. And if you want to listen to us live, you can always go to iHeart and just type in the call letters WBRP. That's the folks here who broadcast our show live in Baton Rouge. Correct. And you type in WBRP, it'll bring you right straight up to their site and you can mm-hmm. click on here's live from 10 to 11 that's great every saturday morning alternatively you go to our website and there's a little link you can click on and up to one hour before the show comes on it'll bring you to that automatically uh-huh. so you don't have to remember all those letters and that's even better stuff all you got to remember is the website <laughs> agco auto agcoauto.com and of course that's our website lots of good information on there lots of stuff you can read and peruse and look at and sure sure a lot of unbiased great information on that site mm-hmm. there's vehicle questions which is a straight to the point right. answer to a particular question mm-hmm. right and then there's the detailed topics which is a much more in-depth article on a certain topic. That's right. And just type the search bar and pretty much anything automotive related has an article written about it right now. Yeah, there are I don't know, maybe 400 of those in there on detailed topics. Uh, put one on this morning. It's actually a rewrite of an older article, and it's about harmonic balancers. Right. And that's one of those things that gets very little thought, but actually gets overlooked quite a bit and causes a number of problems. It does. I can particularly think of one right offhand was a Honda. Mm-hmm. The balancer, the way the balancer is made, the steel part that is actually attached to the crankshaft the hub. has a bolt. Mm-hmm. And then there's a rubber bond between it and a big steel ring on the outside. Right. And what happens is that rubber bond breaks down, and that big steel ring on the outside is allowed to move back and forth where it shouldn't be. Correct. And it will actually back up off of the, the steel pulley that is bolted to the crankshaft mm-hmm. and start rubbing against the timing cover and other various parts that are around it. Well, it can do that. It can also slip out of balance, which throws the engine out of balance and also throws the purpose of the balancer off. And the way a harmonic balancer works is because an engine is a reciprocal engine, every time a cylinder fires, that crankshaft gets a burst of power to one journal, which actually twists the crankshaft. It's called torsional distortion. Correct. It can distort up to two degrees, and then it springs back. Well, if you get six or eight cylinders doing that all at the same time, you can get into what a critical harmonic, which can break the crankshaft. Correct. So what the harmonic balancer does, it actually allows the rubber to slip slightly and then counterbalance that spring back effect of the crankshaft. So it cancels out that torsional distortion, which keeps the crankshaft from breaking. That's the primary purpose of it. It's also used to drive the pulleys and drive the belts on the outside. It's used to help balance the engine. But the main purpose of the harmonic balancer is to counter the torsional distortion of the crankshaft. So when it gets out of time, say that rubber breaks and twists and then it gets off kilter then it can actually allow the crankshaft to break another thing it can do is it can set up a vibration that can wallow the little keyway out in the end of the crankshaft which is going to involve replacing the crankshaft and the engine which is a major 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 repair right most of the time the engine has to come out of the vehicle to have to be done sometimes you can do it inside but 
majority of the time the engine does yeah. have to come out almost never and you're talking thousands of dollars in repair that could easily be prevented sure and what happens is that each time that crankshaft twists this harmonic balancer actually twists in the opposite direction very slightly about two degrees to cancel and it out. then springs back so they spring back counter to each other so it cancels out but that rubber is constantly in a state of twisting releasing twisting releasing twisting releasing which builds up heat so over the years what happens is the rubber will actually fatigue and then when it does it can start to break down because of the heat and the buildup and what have you the age and the rubber will let go it's vulcanized two parts are actually vulcanized together Mm -hmm. but when the grip between the two break and that ring slips now it's no longer in time so it can't do its job and one of the first symptoms that you get a lot of times is like a squeaking noise or a chirping noise. Almost sounds like a, a belt squeak. Sounds exactly like a belt squeaking. And very often it gets mistaken Mis- for a belt squeaking. I've seen folks go in and they will replace the belt on the engine and they tighten that belt up good and tight. Right. Well, it actually temporarily kills the sound because when you tighten it up, you pull that rubber just a little bit tighter. The noise goes away for maybe a day or two and then it comes back again dang must have been a bad belt so right. take it off put another belt well again it goes away a day or two well, man why do i keep getting these bad belts <laughs> right and and that's that's the point where you need to stop yeah that's right and we have a device at the shop which is actually a laser that we can lay in the pulleys and it can show you the alignment of the pulleys and a easy way for you to kind of i guess determine that you got a bigger problem if you take and spray just a little bit of water on a belt and the noise goes away immediately it's probably not the belt because what that does is that allows it to quiet down. It's generally going to allow it to slip slightly. If the belt is the problem, when it slips, it's going to get louder. If it's a worn-out belt, it's going to get louder when you put water on it. If it goes away, generally it's going to be a pulley misalignment. Right. That could be the tensioner is worn out, which is common also, or it could be the harmonic balancer. So you got to check that as well. If that pulley gets slightly out of line it's going to start chirping the belt, but the balancer itself can also make a chirp. Sure. And, and not just those two parts, but any rotating assembly on the front of that engine, say an alternator. Mm-hmm. We changed an alternator six, eight months ago. That's right. And it had the wrong number of grooves on the pulley, or it was built a little different and it didn't line up with everything else. Or there was a, sli- a little small shim that was between the alternator and the engine block, and when you took it off, it, it fell out. And you didn't notice it. Right. So you bolted it up tight, and that little shim was maybe 60 thousandths of an inch thick. Not a lot, but it's enough to be there well now the alternator is 60 thousandths inch out of line right and usually because the top mount is correct and the bottom mount is not it's cocked so it's sitting at a slight angle and a brand new belt may actually allow for that and kind of quiet it down for a little while rubber is going to give some i mean yeah. you got to give it that but then it's going to start chirping right and then and you got a problem that's right and you can change belts until you're blue in the face or run out of money and, <laughs> and, and that if the belt is chirping it's creating heat that's right and heat is a detrimental problem with pulleys and accessories because you start building up heat in the front of a a component it transfers back through the component right and it's not designed to run that much heat. well what's going to happen is eventually it's going to just deplete the lubricant that's in there let's just take an alternator an alternator generates a fair amount of heat on its own correct just because of magnetic fields and all that stuff so let's say this alternator is designed to run 250 degrees and the grease that's in there can take maybe 300 degrees well, if you put something on that's generating more heat, so that pulley gets to 325, it's going it's to deplete that grease up real right. right away. Then the bearing's going to fail. Then the alternator's going to fail. Correct. And an alternator today can be three or $400. Depending on the application, I've seen several of them go $400 easy. Oh, absolutely. And even worse, let's say it slips on the AC compressor clutch. 
Well, now if it ends up burning that clutch up, or let's say you've got one of the newer cars, like the new Toyotas, they don't have a clutch. Uh -huh. That pulley is driving the compressor itself. So let's say that you get too much heat in that pulley and you end up messing up something in that compressor. Some of those compressors can be upwards of $2,000 for the part. Right. That's no labor, not to mention what it's going to tear up when it goes south. Well, that's right. And when a compressor fails, generally it's going to take out the expansion valves, it's going to take out the condenser, it's going to take out the filter dryer, plus the labor to do it, plus vacuum and charge and refrigerant. You're very right. likely going to be close to $2,000 repair for something that started out slipping belt slipping belt or right. a bad harmonic balancer or something like that so the point is when you get in the noise you need to go ahead and look at it and if you can't figure it out don't just think it's gonna go away it's not like a sore thumb it's not gonna heal up no it's not so it's better to go ahead and pay a professional to look at this thing i mean most professionals are not gonna charge you that much you're gonna be it's pretty easy to diagnose it is generally we're gonna find that problem in probably a half an hour or less right at our shop it'd be 45 dollars to diagnose it and how much less is it to go ahead and pay somebody that, let him put a laser on there, let him find the problem, let him cure the problem, than to go ahead and burn up the AC compressor and still have the problem. Exactly, because it's still got to be fixed. still got to be fixed regardless. Right. Plus all the collateral damage that's occurred in the interim. So it just really doesn't make any sense at all. So, right. Hey, we're going to take a quick little break, but we will be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Please stay tuned. Man alive, it starts with a bugle blowing reveille over your bed. When you arrive. And that's why cayenne pepper should never be stored in the bathroom. Yeah! Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Hey! Call her what you want to know. Alphonse, my car needs a new transmission, but I think there might be some other problems looming in the near future. I might as well get a new car, right? Well, here's what I'll recommend. Take it to the pros at Agco Automotive for a general inspection. They know their stuff and they're mighty honest. They'll be able to see if there's any problems likely in the future and tell you your best option. And if you keep your car, bring it into Agco for regular maintenance and you'll be driving it for a long time. Thank you, Alphonse. You do know it all. Say, are you as good-looking as you are smart? Well, let's just say, I know you wouldn't be disappointed. Learn more about the benefits of AGCO at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. AGCO, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Aldezan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? It's 291-6901. And the 225 will reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States. There you go. We sure wish you'd give us a call and tell us what kind of problems you got, what's bugging you. Love to hear from you and different you perspectives of different vehicles around the country. That's right. And we get a lot of email from folks all over the country. And generally, that's, I guess, the best way or the only way really to get in touch with me. I know a lot of times during the week, someone will call the shop and they'll say, hey, can I talk to Lewis? And of course, they're going to ask if your car is in the shop. And if it's not, I'm just not going to be able to come to the phone because right. every bit, 100% of my time is devoted to the folks who are at the shop at that time, helping them get their car fixed, get it through, helping the guys that are there to get the parts on time and everything to where the car is delivered right the first time, on time. That's 100% of my job. So you can't call and chat with me during the week. Right. If you want to call and chat, right now is the oh, perfect yeah. time to do it. Well, that's why we, we do this radio that's show. That's right. So we got we can, time to listen 
and answer your question thoroughly for you. That's right. And if that doesn't work for you, of course, you can send an email, and I will get to that at my earliest convenience, which is always within 24 hours, generally a lot faster than that. Just depends on when you send it. Send it after about 830 at night. You're going to well, get a right. reply the next morning. But well, that's right. And it'll be early the next morning. <laughs> that's right. And if you send it during the day, generally I will check my email several times. So don't be shy about that. Just go to the website hit the contact bar and just type it in. No big deal, but that will get to me and I will get the answer back to you. Right. Now, if you have any other questions about when we can do the car or how we can do the car, how much we charge, any of that stuff, the ladies that answer the phone can handle every bit of that. They're trained, very well-versed. They can answer any question you have, so you really don't have to talk to me. It's just not my job. My job is to help the folks who are already in the shop. Correct. Don't be offended if they tell you that I can't come (laughs) to the phone because it's just the nature of the business. But Talking about email, I see we got right. We have several several emails here. Mr. Allen from Ohio was thinking about trying to find a a different car, a newer car. He was wanting to spend about five thousand dollars on the car, and he wanted our opinion on what would be the best car for him to start looking at. Mm -hmm. And of course, we recommended a Toyota or even a Honda. Right, would be our choice. Well, first choice, first choice. The problem that you're going to find when you start looking at used cars is that $5,000 really doesn't buy a whole lot of used car. I know Not at anymore. one time, at one time, well, one time you could buy a brand new car for that very easily. In yeah, fact, yeah I, come on now. I remember when you bought a brand new car for $1,700. But, you know, <laughs> that's been a while back. But I, I'm old like that. I was going to say, you're showing your age now. That's right. But 5000 just doesn't buy much car anymore. When you figure the average car on the market today is probably 30000 for almost anything. Uh-huh. Anything nice, probably 40000 well, the price of used cars has gone up correspondingly. Right. And used cars now are generally in the ten to fifteen thousand dollar range for anything that's reasonably new. When you start getting the five thousand dollar range, you're either gonna have something with a lot, lot of miles, probably hundred and fifty thousand miles plus, or something that's very old, probably right. 10, 12 years old. If you're talking about a Honda or a Toyota, because they keep their value, you may be talking about something either higher mileage and older than that. So an alternative to that would be something like a Ford Crown Vic or a Mercury Grand Marquis. Right. I like those cars, especially the older ones. The newer ones, not so much. Well, they've quit making them now. The newer Ford's really not. Yeah, uh, not real impressive. Yeah, not very good at all. But some of those old ones are really pretty good cars, and they don't have a lot of resale value. Reason being that young people don't really like those cars. Right, they're not really, not really that stylish for the, the younger crowd. Well, they're not. And so a lot of times they don't consider them, which leaves a lot of them on the market. I guess older folks tend to buy those cars, and older folks also tend to trade cars a little more often because right. they're generally a little more affluent, and they can trade a car in five or six years, unlike a lot of young folks who have to keep a car many, many years. And so you can generally find those cars on the market with lowish miles and in the $5,000 range. Pretty you know, reasonable, pretty good shape, actually. Well, you can get one maybe five, six years old with maybe 60,000, 70,000 miles in the $5,000 range, and it's a decent car. Sure. It does give good mileage. I think they get anywhere from 24 to 28 miles a gallon, depending on how you drive it. Nothing wrong with that. Rear-wheel drive car, so it's a fairly easy car to maintain. A lot of things you can still do yourself on. Right. Fairly conventional technology. And it's just probably a pretty good buy as far as that kind of car. Now, you might also say, well, a Chevy pickup is a pretty decent car, at least before 2006 it was. Mm-hmm. But again, your resale value on that's going to be pretty high. You're probably not going to find one in the $5,000 range. Pretty popular truck right now. It is. And those older ones are more popular because the new ones are so problematic. I know. People are buying up the old ones and fixing them up and just spending just- a lot of money to get them fixed up because it's still a lot cheaper than anything else they can do. Sure. 
So anyway, that was our tip to this gentleman to look at that. If you know, if it's for a young person, he's gonna hate you for it. But yeah, <laughs> it will get him to point from point A to point B. Well, that's exactly right. So just kind of a good low cost car that sure. you can get into. Let's go to our phone lines with John. Good morning, John. John from Toronto calling. I sent hey, you an email. Doing, I wanted to talk. Good. I wanted to talk to you. I have a bit of an accent, though, I think. Oh, yeah, a lot of them. Maybe, right. maybe do. you do. Well, we don't. Maybe you, you do. Know. I don't know. <laughs> One of us does. It seems normal to me, but That's I don't right. know. There you go. Things in Toronto, John. <laughs> oh, pretty good. It, it was really hot two days ago. It's got down to about 70 now. But yeah, it was now, when you say really hot, you mean like 80 degrees, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, we call hot like 100, 105 <laughs> is hot here. <laughs> Well, I tra- we, we use Celsius, so I do translate it for you. <laughs> there you go. That was nice of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what you got on your mind, John? Well, I talked to you before, and I have a problem, uh, or, well, it's a problem getting a good service people. I guess it's too long a drive from Toronto to you, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I checked a couple of dealers this week about changing the automatic transmission on a 2008 Honda Accord that we have. Yes, sir. And it's got about uh, about 60k on 60,000 miles on right. it. Right. And it's an eight, and it needs to be done. But it's funny, but the dealer seemed to give me the best answer, and it was about the same price, which is really strange. I know because usually it's cheaper. At, uh, Sometimes at uh, secondary uh, yeah. dealer dealers. Sometimes, but sometimes. Anyway, he he said to just change it once. And that's what they do. And I know I heard you uh, uh, before, and you said you should really do it twice, run it, and then, and then redo it again. Yes, sir. Yes. So, and he, but he says it's $95 to do it once, and if you do it two times, it's twice that. Well, I don't really think it should be twice that. Maybe it should be a no. half more because you certainly yeah, do everything. I, I mean, really, are you fairly handy at all, John? Do you do any work yourself? I actually don't know. Okay, I don't yeah. have any anywhere to do it. But I, yeah. I know, as you, you said, it's pretty simple. Very, very but I simple. Think, yeah, I mean, go ahead. I don't think it should charge you twice. That's that's a little excessive. You may look around a little more for an independent shop who would be a little more reasonable on that. But all they have to do is just re- drive it, get it warm, remove that little drain plug. They're going to drain out three and a half quarts. You fill the three and a half quarts in, you go drive for about 10 minutes, you come back and do it again, and that's basically all there is to it. The only trick, if there's a trick to it, is you got to use the Honda fluid, so you want to make sure whoever does it is not putting any kind of aftermarket fluid. But almost any oil change place, almost any competent shop that could change oil could change this. It's not yes. a real difficult one like some vehicles are. And I would think 95 is probably not a bad price to do it once, but I think Twice that would definitely be a little excessive. He said that actually that Honda said that they should do it three times. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know? I mean, if it's never been done before, doing it three times just gets a little more out. But twice, you're changing virtually 100% of the fluid in. It only holds seven quarts. So I would probably try to find somebody who gave me a little bit better price. I know at Agco, we charge about 45 minutes labor, which I think is around $70 or $80. I think the whole thing comes to about $130, $140 to do it twice. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, and I would think that would be a fairly uh, average figure across the country because, I mean, costs don't vary that much. Dealers are a little higher everywhere you go, but, I mean, I wouldn't think that would vary that much. But I think I'd just keep looking, see if you couldn't find somebody. Or maybe you could just discuss with them and say, look, guys, I have no problem paying you the 95 for the first time, but I just don't think it should be twice as much to do it again. And could you cut me a little slack on that because I'd really like to have it done twice and see what they say. You know, sometimes they'll – kind of negotiate with you well that's a good point the other thing that you talked about somebody on the line that said 
about maybe not do, maybe doing it more often, maybe just do it every 30K yeah. and, and do it that way. Yes, yeah, sir. If you did it every 30K, you could probably get by doing it once. Because it's well, not that's what I get think. It might, be the, it might be the smartest way over yes, time, I would think. Because we don't put a lot of miles on this car because, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, 2008 and it's only got 60K. So. Yeah, right. I think if I were you, John, what I would do, have you read the articles on my site on finding a shop? The, I did. The and and uh, I, you know, I know a little bit about cars. And I went. To, I discussed it with these fellas, the two other ones that I had mm-hmm. talked to before. And yes, sir. They just they want to argue with. They want to put additives in. No. I get nervous. You know, yeah. I don't. I know we shouldn't do that. And I want to be sure they actually do use Honda fluid. And I thought, well, if I go to Honda, I should have a better chance. Well, yes, sir. It. That is correct. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, so. you could even purchase the fluid and bring it to them and say, look, this is what goes in my transmission. Use this to do the service with. Yep. And that way, they would have the correct fluid to do it with. That's right. Yeah. I love all the points you give, like giving the serial number for the brakes. I've noted all these little things, so when <laughs> I need these services, I you know, I'm not, and I don't need to get rotors every time. You, there's so many good things. I really appreciate everything you do. I wish I had somebody like you handy, but at least I have you a phone call away now. Well, Since that's right. The radio, since you changed the radio station now, I can actually call you. I'm on my iPod sitting outside of a restaurant in, oh, well, in, right. in town. Cool. And I can get you now, but I couldn't before because it wouldn't work up here. They did the, the, the stitcher doesn't allow you to dial in. I'll be darned. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got yeah. us. Well, nice to talk with you guys. I really appreciate it. You do a fabulous job. Well, John, I sure appreciate the call, man. Bye for now. Thank you, sir. Bye bye. All right, boy, there you go, John from Canada. How about that? There you go. So we know we're reaching out there. At least that far, huh? <laughs> At least Canada. Well, I get email from all over the world. I get a lot from the United Kingdom. Right. Because, of course, they speak English. And we get a couple of gentlemen in the Philippines who email on a fairly fairly regular basis. Uh-huh. And I've even got a lot of folks in North Africa who no kidding. send us. Yeah, I had a guy from Tunisia, another guy from Botswana, uh-huh. a guy from Zimbabwe. So... We do definitely get out on the podcast, and a lot of these guys do email and keep in touch with us. That's great. Yeah, it, I guess the auto repair industry is sort of kind of a standard, maybe. Yeah, it's sort of in a state of flux in that cars have changed so much in the last few years that a lot of shops just really haven't kept up. They're uh-huh. still doing things the way they did 10 years ago or, or worse, 15, 20 years ago. Right. And a lot of them just haven't embraced the newer techniques and stuff. So it creates a lot of problems for folks. And so I think people are looking for answers. And certainly that's what our website and radio show and all is all about, is right. giving you an answer. And I'm not saying that there aren't other people who fix cars, because certainly there are, oh, there are. thousands just and thousands of very, look on, very competent look people Look on just there. about every street corner. Yeah. There's a repair shop. Now, whether they're competent or not, that's well, a different story. That's the thing. And I don't think that dishonesty is such a problem like it used to be. I think most of the shops that are still around, they are fairly honest folks. But a lot of them just haven't kept up with the method. They're still doing things the way they used to do them. And really, they don't realize that some of the fluids and some of the chemicals and things that we are using today are just absolutely critical. We have to use that. If that's what the manufacturer suggests is a reason why it is is designed for that. That's not optional. That needs to go in there. Correct. So... Anyway, just a little bit of advice there, and we're going to take another quick little break, but we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. And that's why you never put a dead or live octopus in the microwave. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Hey! 
Caller, what you want to know? Alphonse, my old truck needs some repairs. Or should I buy a new one to save money? Well, let me get out my calculator here. Let's say a new truck costs about $35,000 plus $3,500 or so in taxes, then higher insurance. And you know, in about three years, the value is going to drop to about $15,000. That's $8,000 a year just to drive it. Wow, I've never thought of it like that. I suggest taking it to Agco Automotive for a general inspection to see if your old truck is worth keeping, which I think it is. And if so, keep bringing it to Agco for regular maintenance, and you'll be able to drive it for a whole lot longer. And I can spend money on other things like my beautiful wife. I'm assuming she's right there in the room with you, huh? Alphonse, you do know it all, don't you? Learn more about the benefits of Agco at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. You're joining us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldersan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Just go ahead and give us a call. It's 291-6901. Got all our lines wide open. Be glad to try to get you a in-depth personal answer there you go and put questions you might have 225 in front of that you can reach us from anywhere inside the continental united states yep there you go we had a fellow who called in during the break didn't want to be on the air right he he says well you recommended a honda and a toyota that's not very american well Well, think about this actually a total misconception because number one a toyota camry is built in georgetown kentucky how about that yep and a honda is generally built in ohio right in fact they export them to japan but more to the point, if you look at the amount of content, domestic content in vehicles. Okay. Now, this is not hearsay. This is not hoopla. This is a fact. There is a act by the U.S. Congress called right. the American Automobile Labeling Act, ALA. Okay. Look that up, and it will tell you the amount of content in each vehicle okay. and where it comes from. And, of course, they have it slanted to try sure. to give the domestic cars an advantage. For instance, if GM buys a part from ac delco and delco buys it from china okay they can still call that an american part because it came from delco <laughs> but if toyota buys a part from delco they have to list it as a point of origin right so it's a little bit skewed but even with that skewing look on there and see how many american cars have more than 70 percent u.s content very very, very few. few toyota has 70 percent u.s content how about that so I know I stand there behind the counter and get parts in every day, all day long, and I see where they're made. And I see made in USA on a whole lot more Honda and Toyota parts than I do on General Motors and Ford parts. Exactly. What I see on those is made in Mexico, made in China, mostly made in China, made right. in Taiwan, made in Korea. Yeah. <laughs> made Just name, all, name your place. All over the world. So the old fallacy about I want to buy an American car just doesn't hold water. No, not anymore. Remember, I had a lady came in, and she had a little domestic car. It was a Chevrolet, and she was having a lot of trouble. She said, well, at least it's an American car. I said, well, well, well wait actually, a <laughs> actually, it's built in Canada in a Suzuki factory and has a Chinese motor. How about that? She said, well, at least the name's America. I said, no, Louis Chevrolet from Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> so even her name's not American. Right. And we are truly in a world economy, so I'm not sh- so sure how all that breaks down as far as importance and all. But the thing is, let's say you buy a Ford Fusion or Focus. Okay. Well, that's probably not made in the United States. Probably not. I think one of them is built in Canada. The other one's built uh, somewhere else. Right. Say you buy a Suburban. It may be made in Mexico. You buy a Toyota Tundra's built in Texas. Right. So the name is not necessarily going to tell you where the car is made. Again, if you want more information, go to my website. I have an article on this topic. Mm -hmm. Or just look up the American Automobile Labeling Act. 
and it's got specifications. I mean, we spend, I think, as taxpayers, about $7 million a year to accumulate all that information. Somebody ought to get some benefit I'm out of it. I'm telling you, huh? But, yeah, it'll tell you what the amount of content is on your vehicle, and you will be shocked at how sure. little it is on a lot of what we call domestic cars. I so, remember I remember looking at that list, and I was just in awe of what well, it was exactly what I thought the opposite of. Well, that's exactly right, and... I know the domestic car companies will sit there and wave the flag and say, hey, hoorah, buy an American car. Right. But now they don't really practice that. If you look at the amount of stuff imported into the United States, other than oil, the number one importer in the United States is the big three. Sure. They import over 30% of everything that comes into this country. Wow. So this stuff about, well, buy American, that really just doesn't hold water. Not anymore. If you buy a Toyota Camry, you're employing people in Kentucky. Well, the last time I looked was part of America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're getting a whole lot more U.S. content, and you're getting a heck of a lot better car. Sure. I'm not un-American. I'm just stating what I see every day, all day long, that when I see domestic cars coming in that are maybe 60, 70, 80,000 miles and need $1,500, dollars worth of repair. And I see Toyotas and Hondas coming in with 150,000 miles that still don't need that kind of repair. Right. All they need is a little maintenance on them and man, yeah, they're ready to go. Yeah. I'm going to vote with my pocketbook. Oh, yeah. Because I'm not going to buy a worse car because it has a certain name and somebody told me that is good for the country because I just don't believe that's good for the country. I think what's good for the country is to optimize the pocketbook of every U.S. citizen. Sure. That's what's good for the country. And you do that by giving them a better car that doesn't break. They don't have to spend all their hard-earned money trying to keep it going. There you go. That's worth less before they get through paying right. for it than they owe on it. Right. That's what's good for America. <laughs> exactly. At least in my humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I see we got a pile of other emails there. What else you got? We do. We have Mr. Robinson from Ohio here sent us an email. And he has a, said he went to a quick change place the other day. And when he got home, he noticed that his check engine light, 4x4 light, and track light were on. And he checked all, said it was okay. And maybe they knocked something loose when they change all, which is a possibility. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know if there's any way to reset it or what should he actually do or he didn't want to just unhook the battery and lose any valuable information, which was a great first start. Well, that's right. He says he listens to the show every week, and I think that's where he got that. You never, ever, ever disconnect the battery. Number one, that's not ever going to fix anything. No. All that does is clears the memory out of the computer, so you no longer have the diagnostic data that is necessary to fix the problem. Right. Each time that check engine light comes on, it sets a... Or what we call a freeze frame, which is what was happening at the vehicle at that particular time when the light came on. Right. It's all frozen in a history file in another part of the tool that you can access. You can go through that information, look at it, and decide where you need to start looking from there with right. that information. It'll give you a whole lot of insight that's going to make the diagnosis a whole lot faster and easier. And when you disconnect the battery, you lose that. You lose your adaptive learn, so your transmission is not going to shift right. It's not going to idle right. It's uh -huh. going to fail inspection because you cleared all the readiness tests. And all that stuff takes time to regenerate. So never, ever, ever disconnect the battery. Now, what should he do? I suggest that first off, I just go back to the oil change place and say, hey, guys, I'm not accusing you of anything, but right after I got my car back, check engine light came on. Could you check it over and make sure you didn't knock a line off or something like that? Because right. let's say they check the air filter and they knock the little vacuum line off the air filter. Well, the check engine light is going to pop on. It's pretty and common. Yeah, that can certainly happen. Now, it's also possible it's just coincidence. Sure. Know, everything happens at a time, and it just happens that they change the oil just before the light came on. Right. So if 
it's nothing that they did. You take it to a competent shop, let them run the codes, and let them do a diagnosis and tell you what it is that's causing the light. Right. You and need that's to... going to be so much cheaper than sitting there trying to, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Right. And that's what you get when you just get the code red and you start throwing parts at it. Well, that's right, because maybe it's a whole lot of things. Sure. All those things cost money. And when you start changing them, hoping to find something, you're liable to spend a whole lot of money you don't have to spend. And maybe create another problem. That's exactly right. Let's go to our phone lines with Marvin. Good morning, Marvin. Good morning. Yes, sir. I have a 2007 GMC Sierra pickup truck with okay. a 5.3 V8. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And uh, changed the original battery in it. And always before, the uh, gauge on the inside showed about 14 volts. Mm-hmm. And it was about 14 volts at the battery. And I put a new battery in it. And now the gauge drops back down to a little above 12 volts. Right. Back to 14. It sways back and forth. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, that may not be unusual. What you need to do, Marvin, go to my website. And there's an article on that exact topic, why GM voltmeters fluctuate so much. And what it is, that alternator actually has six different charging strategies. That's going to change the amount and the rate that it charges. Mm-hmm. Now, if the old battery were weak, it may stay on the high-yield charge strategy. It's going to stay up around 14 volts. If you got a good, strong battery, it may cut back to around 12.5 volts because it just doesn't need to be charging as much, which okay. gives you better gas mileage. But if you will go to that article, it'll explain you how the strategies work and it'll even show you a way to override the strategies and kind of check the alternator to make sure it is working properly. But that can vary anywhere between 12.5 and 14.5 volts and still be perfectly normal, and it's going to do it at different times depending on the strategy that it chooses. And yeah, because... It never did it with the original factory battery, mm-hmm. and now it's doing it with the battery I put in there, the new battery I put in there. Yeah, and if the battery's staying up, it's probably normal, but it's just see something that's different. But read that article. It'll give you a lot of insight. That is an incredibly, incredibly complex system. I mean, I don't know why they went to so much complexity on it, but it is just very, very complex. That being said, I can say that I have never changed one of those alternators and i mean i've seen them with 150,000 miles now i've seen a lot of them changed for other reasons did not fix the problem put an aftermarket on and we had to take it off and go back and get another gm alternator put on to fix the problem they created but i've never seen one of those alternators go bad well i took the alternator off and took it to an alternator shop and Mm -hmm. he said there was nothing wrong with the alternator well probably not and I, checked, I had the battery checked, and there's nothing wrong with the battery. That's right. I just couldn't understand why it would change. He said there may be a regulator in the computer. Uh, well, in the, the computer car. does control it right. completely, and there's also a couple sensors, and there's also some wiring issues that we've run across with those that can cause problems. I'm not saying you don't have a problem because those trucks are notorious for charging system problems, but it may be perfectly normal. And like I said, you'll have to read that article to understand how it works. It may not be a problem at all. But I have seen so many people take those alternators off, put another one on. Now they got a problem. Right, and usually that that one goes back to the wherever the the remanufacturing was bought, and it's gone then. That's right. So now you don't have one to trade in. So when I go buy that one from Chevrolet and they charge me four hundred fifty bucks, they also charge me with a hundred dollar core charge, and they're not going to accept that piece of junk reman as a core because they don't want it either. They're not because they can't do anything with it. So now you're out about seven or eight hundred bucks for something that wasn't a problem in the first place, and we still got to fix the original problem. We've seen a lot of problems with the wiring on those where the plugins go in. There's actually a little update plug-in harness for it and some stuff like that. It's probably not a problem, but if it is a problem, it's more likely going to be in that area and not the alternator at all. So don't ever just change the alternator thinking you're going to fix that because you will create a big problem and not solve the problem. That's why I took it to an alternator shop. And there you he said go. That, that alternator, was a, he never had any problems with those No, uh, no. They just, they just hardly ever go out. Most of the problems are on the outside. Either one of the sensors or something like that, or the computer's not commanding it for, because of an input. And like I said, it takes a number of inputs. 
And if one of the inputs is incorrect, it's going to change the charging strategy. So it could also be when the battery was replaced, you might have knocked a wire off the battery temperature sensor or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's all kinds of things. It's going to be way, way, way over the head of the average do-it-yourselfer. you got to have a Tech 2, which is a GM scan tool, to even go in and access this stuff. And mm-hmm. most competent independent shops are going to have that, but you really can't test that system outside the car. In other words, you can't take it off and test it because that doesn't take all the inputs or the computer into control. All mm-hmm. that does is puts the alternated maximum charge. Yes, yeah, putting out maximum charge. Right. But it doesn't say what it's doing on the car. I see. I'll read that article and see what happens. There you happens. go. Thank you very all much. Right, all man. right. Thanks, Enjoy Connor. your show. Well, thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would absolutely love to have you. That's one of those things that the reason I wrote that article is because we were getting an inordinate number of people coming in the shop, and they're in the situation you just described. They've taken off their alternator. They went to a parts store. They bought a substandard piece of junk alternator, right. put it on. Now they have a problem. Correct. Because they still got the original problem. Now they got a piece of junk alternator. Well, if they had a problem to begin with. Well, if they had a problem, because it could have been perfectly normal. Sure. Maybe the temperature sensor on the battery is disconnected, so it's gone to a different charging strategy. In some cases, an air conditioning issue can put it in a different strategy. Right. A engine coolant temperature sensor can put it in a different strategy. Actually idling the engine, if the throttle body is too dirty, can actually put it into a different charging strategy. Correct. So they've got a, another problem. They put a piece of junk alternator on it, and now it's not charging at all. Now, this is the big thing. When you bring it to me, the first thing I can do, I can fix the original problem, but the alternator you got is not charging. So now we got to go and buy a GM alternator put back, which, like I said, is about 450 bucks. Right. GM is not going to accept this Chinese knockoff alternator you got as a core because there's nothing they can do with it. Right. So they can't do anything. They can't build it. Your alternator's gone because you turned it in. Now you got to buy a core charge, an alternator, diagnosis, plus fix the original problem. Right. You end up spending 1000 bucks on something that probably could have been fixed for a couple of hundred bucks or maybe a lot less, maybe 40 or 50 bucks, because you just jumped in there and tried to do something thinking the way we used to think 20 years ago right that strategy's gone oh yeah absolutely. i mean the the complexity of that system is just it, it's kind of kind i don't of know overkill in my yeah, opinion yeah i guess and that's the word i was looking even for if you don't have a gm vehicle go in and read that article because it just gives you a little bit of insight on the way charging systems and so many other things today operate uh-huh. the amount of complexity in there and how easy it is to go wrong just trying to think the way you thought maybe five years ago right we're going back to phone lines with John. Good morning, John. Good morning, sir. I have got a question, and I know that you have a strong bent towards Toyotas. Yes, sir. But I'm not looking at a Toyota. My question is, is I'm looking at a four-door half-ton truck, and I'm looking at Ford Dodge Chevy, either a 2012 or 2013. Okay. My question is, is what do you see least in your shop? Which one of those do you see the least of in your shop? Well, I see the least Dodges, but that's because they sell a lot less Dodges than they sell anything else by far. But as far as quality, I would definitely not buy Ford. I mean, we see a tremendous amount of problem with those, and we see a fair number of problems with the General Motors products as well. Okay. All right. Okay. All righty. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to take our final little quick break, and we're going to be right back. If you got a question, now's the time to give us a call. Still got plenty of time. We'll try to get you an answer. And that's why Justin Bieber should never, I repeat, never be cloned. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Hey! Call her what you want to know. Alphonse, my six-year-old car needs about $2,500 worth of work, a new AC, and tires. You think I should do it or invest in a new car? So how much you paid for it six years ago? 
$40,000. Well, now it's valued at about $10,000, so it costs you $30,000 to drive it the last six years. That's $5,000 a year. Well, let's say you keep the car and spend about $2,500 on repairs every couple of years, which is about $1,200 a year. Way less than a new car, huh? Whoa, sounds like I need to keep my old car. Then bring it to Agco Automotive for regular maintenance, and it will last you even longer. Now that sounds like a good investment. Hey, Al, you got any stock market tips? Oh, for that, you got to tune to my other show, Al's Financial Hour. Learn more about the benefits of Agco at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm Lewis Aldazan, president of Agco Automotive and host of the Automotive Hour. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by my side. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. You just go ahead and give us a call. And that's exactly what Eric did. Good morning, Eric. Hey, Eric, you there? Uh, I'm here. I'm All here. right, go ahead, man. I got a uh, 2007 uh, Chevy Silverado uh, 2500 HD. And yes, it's got, the, got the gas engine in it. Mm-hmm. The question is, work truck. And about 75,000 miles, the transmission gave me some trouble, and uh, the check engine light came on. Okay. Basically, it would ramp up, and it would shift real hard in, yes, sir. in 30 years. So mm-hmm. took it to the dealership, and they basically fixed it for – it was right out of warranty, so they uh-huh. fixed it for a minimal price. Okay. And then now it's two years later, and it's doing the same thing. And my question is, in the morning times and when we haven't drove it very long, yes, it, it won't do it. Mm-hmm. but. But then yeah. the more we drive it, it starts doing it. Oh, yeah, it. I know exactly what that is. It'll probably be a code P1870, which is maximum shift adapt. And you see, when they say they fixed it, you need to know what they did. Because if they went in and changed the pressure control solenoid, that uh-huh. would probably temporarily fix it. There's, right. there's a solenoid, and what it does is that when the transmission realizes that it's beginning to slip, what it will uh-huh. do is it will boost the line pressure up to prevent that. So as the pressure gets higher, of course, it's going to shift more firmly. That's And what happens when you start driving, it starts to slip, and it starts to boost, and it slips, and it boosts, and it slips, and it boosts. So you have to drive it maybe 30, 40, 50 miles for it to get to right. maximum adapt. When it hits maximum, that's when the light will come on. That's when it will start just banging into gear. Now, right. the problem is, in my opinion, there's a reason why that solenoid failed to start with. And most of the time, it's an electromagnetic solenoid. What happens is that something goes wrong in the transmission and it starts to generate metal. In other words, let's say a snap ring breaks or a bearing goes bad or something like that. Well, it starts to generate little pieces of metal. Well, this metal are going to go to a magnet and they're going to cling to it. When it gets enough of it on there, the solenoid sticks and it starts doing this. Well, what they do is they go in to take solenoid out and they put another solenoid in there. They put another filter on it, put new fluid in it. Okay, well, yeah, it'll work for a little while. But you haven't addressed the original problem, which was the transmissions generating metal. So a year later, two years later, wham, we're right back again. Only now it's much worse because whatever was generating metal then is still generating metal now. And all the metal that's generated has circulated through the whole system. So that would be my guess as to what happened. You'd have to go back and look and see what they did at that time, see what the code was and all that to confirm it. But it's probably going to be a P1870, or it'll be a P18 something. And the okay. code will be maximum adaptive shift. And it is what it's doing is it's boosting the pressure. Now, Eric, pretty important to get something done with this, because what's going to happen when it goes to maximum adapt like that, it starts slamming in gear, you can actually end up breaking the case. And okay. if you break the case, then you got a non-repairable unit. So right now, you're probably going to be into a rebuild. You're going to have to drop it out. You're going to have to go in and find out what's generating the metal. You're going to have to fix that. Of course, the torque converter is going to be all full of metal, so you have to change that. You have to change the seals, gaskets, what have you. 
I would personally change all of the solenoids in it if I were rebuilding it. Okay. And it's that's a four-speed transmission. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yeah, four L sixty E. Right. What we do when we rebuild those, particularly if it's a work truck, is we will go in and put the planetaries out of a four L sixty five. It's a five gear planetary. It's much stronger than the original, so it doesn't give that problem again. There's some plastic accumulator pistons. We replace those with aluminum pistons. There's a part called a reaction shell that breaks a lot. We put a billet steel reaction shell. We put a shift improver kit in the valve body, which gives you a little firmer shift. It just you can make it a lot better transmission than the original, and you can actually make it better than when you can get a rebuilt. Right. If you go to Chevrolet okay. and buy a uh, buy a rebuilt transmission, you're getting exactly the same thing you had the first time that went out of seventy five thousand miles. Right. So there are ways we can go in. We can make that better than it was, so it will not happen again. Now this so, is just providing your unit will be rebuildable when we take it out. Right. Which most likely most of them are. Yeah, most of them are still driving, but right. it's going to come to a point where it's not going to be. So pretty important to get that in as soon as possible. Whether you choose us, which we'd really appreciate your business, or choose some other good rebuilder, just make sure when they rebuild it, they do do the updates on it, and you should be fine on that. Okay. All, All right. right. Well, I appreciate it. All right, man. All right. Thanks for calling, Thanks Eric. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. All right. All right. 291-6901 is the number. If you can make it real quick, we're just about out of time, but I think we can squeeze another call in there. Yeah, that was a great question. It is, and that's what happens when you take it somewhere that only addresses the symptom. They make it look like they're giving you a deal. Uh-huh. Hey, we're going to fix this for this amount of money. Well, I can paint over a rust spot, sand it down and paint over it real cheap as opposed to going in and fixing the rust. Sure. And if you got a brain tumor, I can give you some aspirin or some painkiller and make that go away for a little while. For a little while. But I really haven't done you a favor. That's it. Hey, I want to tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on the Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcast listeners. Thank you for listening and go to our website. You can get give on there. A, give us a written review if you would. We'd sure thank you for that. And preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.